This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I am Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamperin. Today we're going to be chatting about First Ontario Centre. What is going on with the promised renovations to First Ontario Centre? There is more confusion. PJ Mercanti of Hupeg will join us to talk about this. We will be chatting with both Carl Subban, father of NHLer PK, and Bruce Kidd, great former athlete, now professor, talking about sports betting. A lot of concerns being raised. Uh, lifeguards, there is a shortage, we are told, of lifeguards when combined with the fact that kids weren't able, many, to get to swimming lessons due to COVID over the last few years. A lot of concerns about summertime and drownings. That is a significant issue. We'll get into that one. Should the Prime Minister's powers within the House of Commons be curtailed a little bit? Should they be written down and restricted? An NDP MP joins us to talk about that one. And the border crossings. Numbers are down. Is this a good thing? You will get into all that, all of that after this. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the First Ontario Centre renovations, which have been a thing that a lot of people very interested in in this city, very concerned about, very curious about. Uh, PJ Mercanti is the president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. Joins us now. PJ, how are you this morning? Doing well. Thanks, Scott. So I, I wanted to ask you about this because I wrote this thing the other day and, and I know you read it. I know people have been reading it that the Hupeg group and you have been saying that construction renovations will begin after uh, Cirque du Soleil near the end of December. And then the group that runs the Disney on Ice that produces Disney on Ice says they have confirmed dates for sometime in 2024 for their 2024 tour. I mean, I, can you understand people's confusion of what is going on? Because it seems confusing. Well, uh, you know, our position is that, you know, we had shared uh, publicly that at the, as you said, at the end of the Cirque uh, run uh, in December, that the arena would close. You know, we shared that news. We know that uh, that OBG 360, the management company, uh, also shared that. So, so you know, I was certainly caught uh, off guard and surprised by your your article referencing you know activation in 2024 so we had obviously connected with uh with obg 360 and their leadership team about you know you know where's this coming from and so you know and i'll and i'll share with you the response that you know that we got from their leadership so so they shared with us it took a bit of digging but we got confirmation from feld that's the 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 the, the disney on ice promoter that the spec reached out to feld's third-party marketing company that handles all of their Ontario shows who made the comment since it's been an annual event without knowing the event is not confirmed due to being closed for renovations nor the angle of the story. Feld is of course apologetic and understands the negative impact this has. They're dealing with a third-party company. We're not sure why they would ever confirm a show or speak to the media before it's been properly announced regardless if we were open or not. Um, also, why didn't the media just ask us or felt for input prior to providing an answer in print? So, Scott, that was the answer we got back from uh, from you know our, our our partners at OVG 360. You know, clearly, Feld um, had a third party marketing uh, company uh, make the comment because it's been an annual, uh, obviously, event, uh, and so so that was their position. They you know they obviously uh, shared. Uh, with OVG 360, that they're you know that they're apologetic of the of the misunderstanding, but that's the that's the answer that we got. So hopefully 
that provides some some clarity on the issue and gives the public some peace of mind um, that you know that the arena is in fact going to be uh, you know uh, closing at the end of this year and, and and slated for renovations early next. Okay, and and look, that I appreciate the clarification. To, so you know, so listeners know, the answer that was given was to me, and that comment was directly from Feld. Rather, and we also heard from a third party, but we got it directly from Feld. So just for clarification, they also had said that it was confirmed. Nonetheless, you are saying right now that cons- that, that renovations will begin unquestionably after Cirque du Soleil. That's going to be the last show, and then things are going to start. That's that's correct, Scott. That's correct. Do we know at this point um, when, like how far after things are going? Where, where do things stand now as far as... Um, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago to that point, there had been no application. The city said for permits or things like that. Well, how, how, where are we looking as far as when construction might begin? So, so we, we had a very positive meeting with the, uh, the, uh, OVG leadership, UPEG leadership with, uh, with folks, uh, from the city's, um, planning department about the whole, uh, process planning, uh, timelines, uh, you know, pulling permits, uh, submitting drawings, etc. So it was a robust meeting with many key stakeholders uh, from the city uh, planning department present at that meeting. And and so so you know there is you know we don't want to you know speak um, about you know the contents of that private confidential meeting, but uh, rest assured there was robust dialogue and discussion about you know you know what you know what types of information. Uh, is going to need to be submitted when, you know, pulling a permit. So all of that was discussed in, in this meeting. It was a very positive meeting. There was good vibes and good energy and, and, and a resolve to get things moving quickly. Uh, and so, so, you know, obviously there will be more information shared at the appropriate time and, and engagement, uh, you know, with, uh, with the public and other stakeholders. But wheels are in motion and, and good. There was a good progress made at that meeting, which took place uh, just over a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago. There's PJ Mercanti. He's the president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. PJ, thank you for this this morning. No problem. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you've been watching any of the Stanley Cup playoffs over the last few weeks, and, you know, as long as the Leafs were in, or maybe the Oilers, you probably were. But even if you weren't, if you've been watching anything, really, on TV for a long time now, a year, whatever whatever the time frame is since sports gambling became legal in this country. You will have seen ads for betting services. Lots and lots and lots and lots of ads. It seems like you cannot watch anything these days for more than a few minutes without coming across some kind of ad for gambling. Not everyone is thrilled about it. While this is obviously a big business and obviously there's money to be made, not everyone is thrilled with the concept of this overwhelming besiegement, is that a word? Besieging? Be- whatever. You know what I mean. Of gambling ads. One of those people who is concerned about this uh, is Carl Subban, father of PK, who I'm sure you know well, and Malcolm, and you know. Carl joins us now. Carl, how are you this morning? Very good. Good morning, and how are you doing? We are great. You know, it's great to talk to you. PK spent a year here in Hamilton with the Bulldogs. I'm sure you were at uh, First Ontario Centre a few times over those uh, over those days, so we're glad to have you on. Yeah, quite a few times, and he had a great rookie year in Hamilton, and I'm hoping I'm going to have a great year, a great time right now with, 
with you on your station. How is that? Well, that's uh, hey, you're you're good at this whole segue thing. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> Look, I, this is this is something that I've heard a lot of people talking about. Not necessarily the same position you're taking, but the idea that boy, it seems like we are seeing gambling ads all the time now, especially in the Stanley Cup playoffs. You have concerns about this? Why? Yeah, you know, I remember sitting there uh, watching the hockey game, and then uh, uh, you know, it was like it was all these ads, and I'm going to tell you there was something about them that that felt bad. It was making me feel bad. I, I really didn't understand it at first. And so um, someone reached out to me uh, uh, from a committee uh, that was work that's working now to ban ads for sports gambling. And I decided, listen, I needed to get on board because I've spent my entire life working with young people uh, to help them to realize their potential. And this is another layer, uh, um, uh, something else that they're going to have to deal with. I'll tell you what, too many young people are engaging in these uh, ungambling today online. Too many of them are doing it. Is your concern, Carl, specifically or broadly with the ads themselves, or is it with the fact that there are NHL players, I mean, even like Wayne Gretzky and Chris Prong and others, (laughs) is it that the players are involved in these ads? Yeah, I'm going to tell you this. 48% of Canadians agree with us, by the way, uh, who are against that. They want to restrict that. We want to restrict advertising um, ads, especially the ones using uh, celebrities and, and, and these superstar athletes, because we know that they're leaders and we know what leaders do. They influence. And so, and so we don't want them influencing our young people to gamble because our young people want to be like these guys. They want to be like them. And we want them to love them. PK, Malcolm, and Jordan, they love their favorite hockey players. But, you know, as every parent know, as every parent know, uh, we want our kids to love them, but you don't have to love everything that they're doing or saying. And we don't want our kids to love gambling, you know? And... And, and so, and it's hard to get that message across because we know the part of the brain that is responsible for decision-making isn't fully developed until about 25. So, and that's, you know, there's an age group, I believe it's 18 to 35, that's getting into a lot of trouble with gambling. It, it can, you know, it leads uh, to so many problems, you know, whether it's putting kids in debt, self-esteem, anxiety, depression. And the, I, I speak to a lot of parents who know parents whose children have got caught up in gambling. And and so once you start to gamble, the, the chances are you're not going to realize your potential, whether it's as a student, uh, the wonderful potential you have to be a great citizen in our society, and someone who's productive. Uh, you know, it's funny, Carl, yesterday on the show we were talking to someone, totally different topic, but we were talking about uh, that foods that are targeted towards kids. Uh, we're talking about foods that are targeted towards kids, and there, there are certain patterns in that one. Do you believe that these gambling ads are targeted towards kids, or just that it's kids, or, or like they're more susceptible, or do you believe it's just kids that will latch on to it because of the celebrity behind it? Well, it's very enticing to adolescents and other vulnerable people. You know, these gambling ads, the frequency, the volume but also using these superstar athletes. You know, I grew up, you know, I came to Canada in 1970, 71, 
And, and I got addicted, sorry about that, to watching Saturday night hockey. That's all we had anyway in those days. And yeah, I love the Canadians, but I loved Ken Dryden. And I wanted to be like Ken Dryden, you know? And so those young people who love these uh, hockey players, I'm just using uh, hockey players as an example, and they want to be like them. If they see them in, in, in these commercials, making gambling look normal when it's not, um, it's not a good thing. And it's very in, enticing, uh, uh, especially to a very vulnerable mm. vulnerable group, uh, the youngest people in our population. And you know what? The gamblers are becoming younger and younger, just like diabetes, yeah. just like some of these things that affected adults are now uh, moving down uh, to younger and younger people. And you know what? One of the most, uh, uh, one of the things that hurts me most is seeing a young person who is not able to work to realize his or her potential. It's just a terrible thing. Carl, we got to run, but very quickly, uh, PK is, he gets a lot of FaceTime on TV even still today. What would you say if PK called you up and said, hey, Dad, I just got a commercial to celebrate, to, uh, to advertise gambling? What would you say to him? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I love my kids unconditionally. PK didn't have to score five goals a game for his dad to love him. Just, just being born was enough. And so, um, and so if he decided to, to sign a contract with one of these companies, I'm definitely not going to like it. And, and so I don't have to like everything he does or everything he, 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 he says on, around, but, but I'm still going to love him. And so most parents, us parents, we know that. Our kids would not always do things that we that we want them to do and that's fine eventually we know that they learn and mm. i know what my values are i try to set a good example but i'm not perfect and i hope that he doesn't but if he does i'm still gonna love him just like i want them to love those superstar athletes but you don't have to love everything they're doing and young people out there you can love your friends but you don't have to love everything they're doing. There you go. They're Carl Subban. Uh, listen, really appreciate it early this morning, but really appreciate you taking some time with us. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Summer is coming, and that means pools are being opened, and soon public pools will be opened, and people will be going to their cottage or other cottages or up north or wherever, which means people in the water thing is, there is a lot of concern, it seems, this year about kids and mostly kids and about swimming lessons and being able to swim. And this all seems to go back a couple of years anyway. This involves COVID and a bunch of other things. I want to bring in Audrey Giles. She is a professor in the School of Human Kinetics at the University of Ottawa. Joins us now. Thank you for this. Really appreciate your time. Good morning, Scott. The story as I'm reading this is that we have a whole lot of kids that because of COVID over the last few years couldn't get to swimming lessons because swimming lessons weren't really offered because every pool pretty much was shut down, public pools. And now these kids are at the age when they're going to be going to friends' houses to swim or up north or whatever. And we are facing some concerns that maybe we got some problems here. Is that a reasonable distillation of what's going on? Yeah, and also just huge lifeguard shortages means that uh, pools and other supervised areas aren't available to people. So they're swimming in more dangerous areas too. Why would there be a lifeguard shortage? Well, during COVID, people couldn't take the lifeguarding courses or the recertification. 
And, you know, they were also out, lifeguards were also out of the pool. And, uh, you know, I've heard anecdotally that uh, some really struggled getting back into it to demonstrate the fitness skills as well. So you had two years where people weren't taking the courses or uh, they weren't recertifying. And so there was just a huge gap in staff who were trained. And then you add to that the labor shortage. And uh, we see that there just aren't enough lifeguards to go around. Are life Is lifeguarding one of those things that the kids who get into it, I don't even know how old you can be when you can officially lifeguard, but it's one of those things that if you are doing that, you generally stay with it for a few years so that there's always this supply. And if you then cut off that supply, they've the, the people who have done it have gone and found something else to do and you just haven't backfilled? I think that's that's part of it for sure. I mean, definitely there are, uh, you know, people who aren't students who have it as a career and uh, they're often in, you know, the more senior positions as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, absolutely. There tends to be uh, quite a bit of turnover in this area. Uh, but at the same time, it has been plagued by low wages. When I, uh, you know, was working as a lifeguard back in the day, being a lifeguard was a great job because it paid really well. And wages just really haven't kept up in a lot of places. So you have people, for instance, my friend's son saying, well, why would I work as a lifeguard with so much responsibility when I could just bag groceries for the same amount of money? There is a, a report from the uh, Canadian uh, Drowning Prevention Research Center. That it's a positive report. It says that less, fewer than 1% of drownings in the country happen where there is a lifeguard present. That's, a, that's the argument for exactly what you're just saying is why we need lifeguards. But if you are not a strong swimmer, why would you go into a lake, a deep lake, or a, like, why would you put yourself in a position? Wouldn't people realize if you're not a strong swimmer that I shouldn't be swimming here where there is no lifeguard? Yeah, I, I think this is a complicated question because, uh, first of all, people are not necessarily great judges of their swimming ability. Um, at the same time, there are risks that they might not be familiar with. And also a lot of people who drown actually can swim. They just find themselves in situations where there are dangers that they didn't anticipate or they're intoxicated too. So, or, or intoxicated, I guess. Mm. So people are not often making decisions that are informed by fact, I guess is a good way of saying it. Yeah. And there's lots, I mean, look, we hear, it's not just swimming. I mean, we hear every year warnings at the beginning of cottage season saying, if you're going out on a boat, wear a life jacket because, you know, for this kind of reason, or, you know, don't do stupid stuff. I guess, I guess doing stupid stuff is just part of the human condition. (laughs) You just, you just hope that we can discourage enough of it that it keeps the problems down, but people are always going to do stupid stuff. And, and fingers pointing back at the speaker at the moment we're talking to just, you know, but yeah, it, it's something that we just do. We sometimes do stupid things. Yeah. And I mean, statistically, unfortunately, it's often men. If we look at boating related fatalities, for instance, there are about 93% of the fatalities. And time and time again, I see a boat where, uh, you know, there's a woman and kids and they're all wearing life jackets and it's a man driving the boat and he's not wearing a life jacket. And I always say when I'm teaching boating safety courses, you know, men do not have unique flotation abilities. And also, <laughs> who's going to help your kids if something happens to you? It, I mean, they, look, they're all great points. They they are. And so, 
leaving the lake for a second then, although there, there are lifeguards at the lake, how do we resolve this then? Is there a huge push on right now for the bronze cross or whatever it's called? The, the, is it still the bronze cross you take for lifeguarding that you have to have? No, it's it's your uh, national lifeguard okay. certification. So is there a huge push on now for this to, to, to try and backfill these positions or is that something that's not being done? And if not, why? Yeah, I, it's complicated again because you need to have people to teach these courses and you also need people who have the swimming skills to take the courses. So that gap is really affecting it. Uh, some municipalities are paying for people to take their lifeguard training because it is quite expensive. Again, if you're you know bagging groceries, you don't have to take hundreds of dollars worth of training and certification and keep that going. So Another another municipality that I read about, if you pick up lifeguarding shifts, they're giving you $5 gift cards to Starbucks. Um, I mean, I recently recertified my lifeguard status. I'm 45. I'm a full-time professor. And the city was like, uh, do you want to pick up some shifts? They are indeed desperate. And, and you know what's so interesting? we got to run here. But th- in refereeing in sports right now, oftentimes, especially in hockey, they're going to former players and trying to find them to get into refereeing. The lure though is if you get into it and if you're good, there's a chance to climb the ladder and who knows, someday you could referee in the OHL or NHL. In lifeguarding, even if you went to former competitive swimmers, where it's not like there's a, a thing you can climb and become a professional lifeguard in professional swimming. It's, it's, it's a, it would be a tough thing to try and draw people in. Yeah. I mean, there are lifeguarding competitions, actually, World Life Saving Society. Yeah. Um, but uh, I recently did a recertification where it was just masters. So people over 35 who were doing it and their primary motivation for being there was keeping the pool open so that their swim mm. clubs and water polo clubs could keep functioning. It is, uh, it is an interesting one uh, for sure. People can read about this. Go to theconversation.com and there is a, a really interesting story about this right now. Audrey Giles from the University of Ottawa. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for inviting me. Have a great day. Yeah, listen, if you're a lifeguard, you want to get back into it, or if you have done it in the past, there's clearly openings for you this summer. So something to think about. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. My next guest, uh, not just a an amazing runner once upon a time, won the Lou Marsh Trophy once upon a time. Uh, he is now a professor emeritus in the School of Sport and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Uh, someone else who shares, I think, these concerns. His name is Bruce Kidd, who joins us now. Bruce, thank you for this today. Well, thank you. Good morning. Uh, Let me read uh, a quote that is attributed to you. I believe it's probably accurate, but you were saying, I love to watch sports, but watching them on television today feels like I'm in a casino. I think a lot of people uh, probably have felt a little bit like that watching a lot of things these days with the gambling ads. The question is, there's a lot of things that people advertise for a lot does it make it a problem that we have this much advertising for this? Yes, it does, because the reach, research shows that it does bring people in to gamble more than they should, and it certainly those ads certainly groom the young to take up gambling as a regular practice. And we know the harms from gambling are considerable. Uh, and so uh, all the research shows that advertising is effective. That's why they spend so much money on it. And uh, particularly vulnerable are uh, children and youth. Uh, I want to get back to that in just a second, but let me go somewhere else first and then we're going to get to there. And that is this. I mean, you are someone who has been an advocate for sports. You're someone who's uh, been involved in sports for a long, long time. There's an argument to be made that this interest in 
wagering on sports drives up interest in sports and helps sports because it gets more people to watch, more people to put their money there. It enables other sports to succeed. Is is there is there a, an argument to be made that there's a positive side to this? Well, I don't see that. There's a disconnect between gambling and the embodied physical activity of sport. And if you can only enjoy sport by plugging in a bet on your phone, you're a long way from removed from actually doing it, getting out on a field, you know, running, jumping, working with others uh, in team sports like football. It's completely uh, at the other end of the spectrum of participation. And what I worry about, and there are many other things that add to this worry, is that uh, that actual participation in sport is falling like a stone in this country. And Gambling is no way to address that deficit. You mentioned children. Is there evidence at this point that you're aware of? Is there evidence now that more kids are participating? Or is the worry that with so much advertising that this is something we're going to see in two, five, ten years? I'm not sure the research in Canada is uh, uh, shows that because the, um, the betting regime is fairly new. But in other countries, the UK and Australia, there is considerable evidence that uh, sports betting has increased uh, children's participation in in betting. Approximately 10% of the television audience is considered to be children. In some sports, for some events, it's much higher. And uh, there, as I've said, as the research said, they're particularly uh, particularly vulnerable. Uh, I have a quote here from the Australian Gambling Research Institute that research into the advertising of other harmful products suggests advertising increases uptake and consumption, especially in the adolescent starter market. That's what we're worried about, the adolescent starter market. So what would be the proposal then? Because I mean, is it, are you seeking or would you like to see gambling ads banned altogether or certain types of gambling ads or times of day when they are shown or shows that they're on that they're shown? What, what, what would be the ideal? Well, the ideal for us would be a complete ban on gambling ads. At the same time, there would be a ban on betting on the Olympic, Paralympic, amateur and educational sports like you sports. Uh, we're quite uh, accepting of the gambling regime for the NHL and the NBA, but not with ads. It, it does seem, and look, I'm not suggesting that it has happened, not in Canada that I know of. Uh, it does seem though that when there is gambling and we're, we're moving away from ads, I suppose a little bit, but when there is gambling allowed on amateur sports, when you don't have millionaires participating, that's one area where, and this is where your this is your background. I mean, you do do you not run the risk of finding that one person who might be willing to do something untoward because hey, there's money there, and I'm not making a lot of money. We would like to see a ban on sports betting on those sports for the very reason that you uh, suggest. Uh, I'm not I'm not the expert on the match fixing match manipulation issues. There's a conference coming up in Toronto uh, next week or in two weeks organized by the Canadian Centre for Ethics and Sport and they're bringing people in from all over the world to look at the risk and the fear but you keep on hearing stories 
that there are uh, fixes offshore uh, on Canadian sport where they've got to that one person to shave a point or change the outcome uh, through a manipulation. Is anyone listening to you, Bruce? I mean, we're listening to you, but I mean, anyone with the kind of power to be able to do this, are, are you getting anyone's ear or right now are you screaming into the, into the wilderness? We think we're getting to the parliamentarians at both the federal and the provincial level. Everyone we talk to says they hear our concern and they're bombarded by other constituents who are, are complaining about the gambling ads. And although I don't know how it's going to event, uh, eventualize, I'm hopeful that in the next few weeks there will be a private member's bill introduced in either Parliament or the Senate in Canada to ban ads for gambling the same way a generation ago we banned ads for tobacco and uh, and hard liquor. Um, there is a lot of interest in, in, in the Canadian Parliament on this. That's the feedback I'm getting. Uh, my own MP uh, here in Toronto told me that she's 100 uh, percent behind this, uh, that uh, when there is such a bill uh, introduced, she will certainly give it her mm. support. That is Bruce Kidd. He is a professor emeritus in the School of Sport and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, uh, even better known for his uh, legendary athletic career. Bruce, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Does the Prime Minister have too much power? And we're not talking in general, we're talking in the House of Commons with procedural issues. Does the Prime Minister have too much power? Should those powers be pulled back a little bit? Should there be stronger limits on what the Prime Minister can do? Well, a new Democrat MP from Manitoba is trying to address that and maybe trying to change it to restrict those powers a little bit to firm some of the things up that right now lie in the hands of the Prime Minister. What are those things? Well, let me bring in that MP. Uh, his name is Daniel Blakey. He's the NDP MP for Elmwood Transcona, who joins us now. Uh, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, you know, I think most people listening uh, don't work in the House of Commons like you, and so they have a rough idea or a pretty good idea of what some of the rules are. But I don't know that all of us could probably go through the list and explain everything in great detail. What are you pointing to specifically or a couple of things of these powers that you are trying to change a little bit to rein in that the Prime Minister has? Sure. Well, first, I'd just start by saying, you know, if folks aren't exactly sure, I think that's I think that's fair because actually some of these things aren't written down. And that's a feature of the way Canada has done business since 1867. So what I'm trying to focus in on and what I'm trying to get written down so it's a lot more clear without having to be a you know expert on the Canadian Constitution is, you know, under what circumstances can the prime minister say either say, OK, you know, this parliament is done and we're going to have an early election or, uh, okay, this parliament is, all of its work is is essentially being torn up and we're going away for a while and we're coming back. And that's what's called prorogation. That's essentially what a prorogation right. means. And right now, even though the House of Commons is the body that is meant to hold the government to account, it's the head of the government, the prime minister, who decides when and on what conditions Parliament meets. And that, to me, really has it backwards, because if the job of the House of Commons is to hold the government to account, it should be the House of Commons that decides 
when it meets and under what conditions it meets, rather than the person uh, who's being held to account. One of the other things that I understand that you have proposed or that's come up is the idea of confidence votes. And I think a lot of people do understand this, that that at some point the, uh, a vote can be coming up in Commons and the Prime Minister can say this is a confidence vote, which means that if they lose, essentially the government has lost the confidence of the, the country, of the other parties, and an election has to be called. You point out some things are not written down. I'm reading in the uh, parliamentary website here, there is no written convention or definition of what constitutes a confidence vote and definitions vary with circumstances. So in other words, whatever the Prime Minister wants to be a confidence vote can be a confidence vote. Should that be changed? Well, this is exactly what I'm trying to change. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do is to say, look, you know, it should be very clear what a confidence vote is. That's not just for parliamentarians. It's also for Canadians because I think they should, uh, I, think, I think it should be easier for everyone to understand you know, if we're going to have an election, why are we having an election and who gets to decide whether we're having an election? So, you know, uh, that's kind of the, the basic idea behind the motion is to push back from the point of view of the House of Commons and say, you know, it's actually the folks who are democratically elected to hold the government to account that should have more of a say here. I mean, even just on the principle, the idea is whether the House of Commons has confidence in the government. Well, how does it make sense for the prime minister to decide that? Shouldn't it be for the House of Commons to decide that? In many other places, you know, legislatures and, and the folks elected to the legislature do have a much bigger say. So there's limits in Canada because of our because of the way the Constitution is now and because this is technically a power of the of the monarch, even though it's the prime minister who gets to make the decision. Um, there's only so much that we can do without having a constitutional amendment. But I think we can make life a lot harder for prime ministers who want to abuse these powers. And and we've seen that happen, right? I mean, we saw it last uh, in the summer of 2020, I should say, uh, when Justin Trudeau prorogued Parliament to end all of the committee investigations into the We Charity scandal. And I think most egregiously, we saw it in 2008 when Stephen Harper knew that he would be facing a confidence vote, that opposition parties were going to vote non-confidence in his government. And instead of doing the honourable thing and facing the House for that vote, he instead decided to prorogue, which meant MPs couldn't have any votes on anything until the Prime Minister was ready to have Parliament come back. And it's that kind of extraordinary power to just shut down Parliament that I think we need to make it a, a lot harder for Prime Ministers to abuse. As I mentioned off the top when I introduced you, you are an NDP minister, uh, an NDP member. Your party, your leader in particular, has been criticized sometimes quite heavily because he has been critical of the Prime Minister, has pointed out flaws or whatever else and then goes along and votes with whatever the Liberals say because of the agreement between the two parties, would this kind of thing allow your party, give it the freedom to vote against some of the Liberals' ideas without having to necessarily bring down the government? I mean, I do think it would make it more clear when we were having a confidence vote and when we weren't. I think that's an important thing. But, you know, in terms of our in terms of our agreement, there's actually been a number of things that we've voted against the government on in this in this parliament, um, that agreement notwithstanding. All that agreement is is an agreement not to cause an election, provided that we're making progress on important things like a national dental care plan, uh, creating more affordable housing, you know, taking action on on uh, climate change. And, you know, we're monitoring uh, you know, that's a public document. People can find it online. There are timelines for progress for many of the items. And as long as we're making steady progress on those policy items, 
will continue to not cause an election, which doesn't mean that we're not doing the accountability work of Parliament. And people will also find we voted with Conservatives and other opposition parties many times too on some of those very committee investigations because we know that our job is to hold the government to account. We haven't decided to sit down on that job at all. Uh, but we are going to get things out of this government and make them do things for people. I think those those things are perfectly consistent. And whether we have an agreement or not, like I tabled a version of this motion in the last parliament, and it's something I've been thinking about since 2008, when uh, I remember sitting around listening to the radio when Stephen Harper went to the governor general. I don't know if you recall, it was a three or four hour meeting, uh, and it was pretty tense, wondering, you know, because the Prime Minister was so obviously trying to get out of facing accountability to Parliament, um, you know, folks around the country were kind of sitting and waiting and wondering, you know, is the Governor-General going to give the Prime Minister what he wants? Is she going to tell him right. no? How does this work? All the constitutional experts and PhDs were called in on radio shows to pontificate about what might happen, right? And uh, for me, I just thought this is this is kind of ridiculous. I mean, it should be a lot more clear. Daniel, I got to empower the prime minister. Is. <laughs> Daniel, sorry, I got to I got to jump in. Unfortunately, I'd love to keep chatting about this, but I have to jump in. Unfortunately, uh, Daniel Blakey, NDP MP for Elmwood Transcona. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate Thanks you doing so much this. for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New numbers in that are showing that the number of people crossing the border. Irregular migrants, or uh, some people call them illegal immigrants, um, the numbers are down since uh, since the new Canada-U.S. border deal has come into play. I want to bring in Joel Sandaluk, who's a partner with Mammon, Sandaluk, and Kingwell. Let me get him on there. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for doing this. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So this is a, uh, I, th- I think most people would look at this and say, this is good news, right? I mean, we, I don't, th- I don't think that's an indication that we don't like immigration. I think it's an idea that people are glad that there is a return to organized immigration. Is that a fair statement? It's a, it's hard. It depends on how you look at it. If you're, if your objective is to limit the number of people entering uh, Canada and claiming, bo- claiming uh, refugee protection between border crossings, then the expansion of the Safe Third Country Agreement is effective. There remain some serious problems with the Safe Third Country Agreement itself, however. Uh, a lot of advocates, people like me, have real concerns about simply denying access to Canada for people who are entering through the United States. And in fact, Canada expanded the Safe Third Country Agreement at a time that we're still waiting on a ruling from the Supreme Court on the constitutionality of the screen in its totality. So it's, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at this, uh, you know, both positive and negative, frankly. All right, let, let's go to your, your point about that, about the concerns about denying people. It, the way it was working before was, uh, now you tell me where I've got this wrong, if I've got this wrong, but the way it was working before, it was far more open and it was not as controlled. Now it seems anyway, the idea is that we have a process that would be a little bit different and more of a process to come in. Is that not correct? Yes. Yeah, that's the way it, uh, that's one way of framing it. Basically what had happened before was people were entering Canada at land border crossings and they were being determined whether or not they were eligible. But a lot of people who are not eligible were trying to avoid that by entering at what are called irregular border crossings. So the most famous one, I suppose, is Roxham Road sure. between the border of uh, Quebec and the United States. And uh, what this has done is that's essentially designated the entire Canada-U.S. border a border crossing. 
So on the one hand, you could say there's more, uh, you know, more control over what's happening to ports of entry. I guess the, the thing people have to remember is that immigration is fundamentally a human system. And what, what that means is there are people in the United States or outside of the United States who intend to get to Canada through the United States. And what this does is this puts money in the pockets of the hands of uh, human smugglers. It puts more people in greater jeopardy. And, you know, one of the things that we used to hear a lot more of is people, uh, you know, crossing at uh, difficult places, people losing, you know, toes or feet to frostbite, or people who are within the thrall of human smugglers who, you know, are uh, forced to, you know, do work that they don't want to do and what have you. What we're doing is we're essentially feeding into that underground economy by shutting this off. Interesting, you know, interesting. And, and, and I mean, that's really interesting you bring that up because, and I don't know that there's going to be a one plus one equals two here, but in recent days we've seen there was a bill in the States that expired and a surge, it seems, of immigrants coming across the southern border. And I have wondered, and I think other people probably have too, if eventually some of that is going to end up coming up far enough north that it now comes into our border and whether we're going to be having some of the same challenges we had before, as you described, people looking for any way possible to get across the border. You know, it's funny. I think a lot of Canadians uh, think that, but what ha- most of those people who are at the U.S. southern border, their destination is the United States. It's a far bigger, far warmer, uh, far more appealing country to a lot of people than Canada is. Generally speaking, the people who come to Canada are people who have something to fear in the United States, or people who have family or already have an established community that lives in this country. So, you know, I'm not going to say that there will be zero impact, uh, but generally speaking, it isn't, uh, in my view, at least a one plus one equals two situation. It's, uh, you know, it's far more muted in my experience. So we then should not necessarily be worried, as and your description of, you know, the people who are sort of desperate enough to get across has that then been contained at all, or has it just been changed now with this new rule? It's been, uh, well, what's happened is the numbers of people crossing the border have fallen incredibly dramatically. Uh, down officially? Thousands. Is that officially, or is that that we know of? No, it's officially and unofficially. Okay. I mean, the, the ones that we don't know of, we don't know of. But some of those people uh, crossing at land border crossings, uh, many of those people intercepted by the uh, CBSA and the RCMP attempting to cross at non-border crossing. So whether it's farmers' fields or indigenous lands or what have you. So, uh, you know, the actual numbers of people crossing is uh, way, way down. It's significantly down. And it may tick back up possibly as, you know, as adjustments are made. This change has only been in effect since March of this year. Um, but that being said, uh, you know, like I said, if, you, if you're looking at this in terms of effectiveness, have the number of people crossing the border uh, diminished? The answer is yes, it absolutely has been effective. But then you could also say, you know, was the Berlin Wall effective at keeping people out of West Berlin? The answer is, yeah, it really was effective. But there was a lot of cruelty and a lot of hardship that was occasioned by those kinds of border controls. And one of the things the Canadian government is doing by expanding the Safe Third Country this uh, agreement in this way is occasioning a great deal of hardship, a great deal of cruelty to people who are desperate to essentially reunite with family in Canada, seek protection in Canada. And one of the other things that we're doing that I think is often missed in this debate is that Canada is essentially surrendering part of its sovereignty to the United States. Mm. Canada has an obligation under international agreements to provide protection to people who are seeking asylum, or at least to assess their need for right. asylum. And what they've done is they've 
outsource that obligation to a foreign country. Joel, I got to jump in here, but I, I, listen, oh, I, I, I say I wish we had more time. Uh, Joel Sandaluk, oh. uh, partner with Mammon Sandaluk and Kingwell, uh, talking about this new, the new immigration numbers. Uh, Joel, really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.